You know, where I grew up, nobody went to Yale Law School. I knew I was a woman of color. I came from an immigrant family. I didn't have that much. And when I applied the first time, you know, my junior, senior year in college didn't get in. By the second time, didn't get in. The third time, you know, got waitlisted. And I remember I just got on a train and I went to New Haven. I knocked on the dean's door. I was like, you gotta let me in. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. You might be surprised to learn that in the mid-90s, women made up nearly half of those working in computer science, but today it's less than 25%. So what happened? On today's episode, we're taking a look at how the tech industry has changed over time and why that change grew to exclude women. And you're going to meet one woman who's working to turn it around. Her name is Reshma Sajani. She's a first-generation American, the daughter of refugees, and the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, a nonprofit that's working to close the gender gap in computer science and technology. And so far, they've reached almost 90,000 girls across all 50 states. Reshma Sajani, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. You are the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Mm -hmm. First off, just tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. (laughs) So Girls Who Code's a nonprofit. We also like to say we're a movement to close the gender gap in computer science and tech. So basically, over the past 40 years, you've had this enormous decline of women in the computer science field and in the technology workforce. So less than 18% of those that are majoring in computer science are women. You know, less than 20% of the technology workforce is female at a time where technology is disrupting everything about the way we live and work. One of the things I find so fascinating about those numbers, 1995, 40% of the people in computer science were women. Mm -hmm. Today, it's less than 25%. What happened in 1995? Why was there <laughs> yeah. a, a consistent move away from it by women? Yeah, because it's crazy because the world's first programmer was a woman, Ada Lovelace. And in the 1980s, if you walked into any gaming camp in America, it would have been half boys, half girls. I think you started seeing in the 1990s the birth of the programmer. So I think this is a lot about culture, right? So in, in the 1990s, you saw Weird Science, Revenge of the Nerds, right? You started to see this White guy in a hoodie sitting in a basement somewhere, you know, drinking a Red Bull, staring at a screen. And little girls started looking at that image um, if they saw in television, in magazines, in newspapers. And they said, you know, uh, it's not for me. And so they started opting out. So I think you just started to have this slow, dramatic decline, you know, year after year after year. Because I think little girls and then women thought that this was a field that was for men. I want to come back to that idea of what what can be done, what you're doing yeah. to, to get young women yeah. more interested. You yourself were on, it looks like somewhat of a different path. Totally you were, different always, path. You yeah. were always an activist. You yeah. grew up in Chicago, which yeah. I love. I'm a Chicago girl as well. <laughs> um, have a very interesting family backstory. Mm. Talk a little bit about what Sure. Your childhood was like and yeah. what motivated you to want to change the world. Yeah. So my parents came here as refugees. They were two of a thousand refugees that got status to come to this country in the 1970s when they were expelled by Idi Amin in Uganda. So um, and they got a chance to come to this country for one reason. They were engineers. And in the 1970s, 
this country was desperately seeking engineers. And so you would have thought that I would have been a natural person to have started Girls Who Code, right? But, you know, from the time that I was young, I was moved by debate and politics and activism. And I kind of got it in my head that I just wasn't good at math or science. My father probably didn't help because he would quiz me about like, you know, algebra questions like at dinner. And I'd be like, wait, I don't know the answer. It's not coming. So I just I thought I just wasn't good at it. And I just gravitated towards the things that I was good at and away from the things that I was bad at, which I thought was math and science. Did they want you to be an engineer? Absolutely. So there was pressure? Such pressure. I mean, in Indian families, it's like doctor or lawyer or like bus. I mean, doctor or engineer or bus. Like a lawyer's (laughs) like, you know, farther down, like they'll settle for it. But it was, you know, I was the first lawyer in my family, and um, I love to read and write. And it was none of those things that my parents, who were highly technical, and people in my family who were highly technical, thought that they would imagine for their daughter. So you go to the University of Illinois. I go to University of Illinois, and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And I uh, applied to law school, played to Yale three times before I got in. And I thought I would work in, you know, uh, the Department of Justice. And I thought I was $300,000 in student loan debt. So I was like, okay, I'll go work at one of those fancy law firms in New York City. You know, I'll pay off my debt in a year. I'll take off those golden handcuffs and then I'll go change the world. And that just didn't happen. And 10 years later, I was working in finance, uh, hating my job. You, You did 10 years on Wall Street. I did 10 years at Davis Polk and then in financial services institutions, basically. Yeah. What? I graduated law school in 20. Uh, the paycheck. I was helping my parents pay for their mortgage. I, you know, my, when I got my first check at Davis Polk, my father framed it because they had never seen so much money before, right? Mm-hmm. This was the Amer- this was the point of the American dream. They were okay with you not becoming an engineer at this point. Yeah. They were like, great. <laughs> you seem like you're doing well. And, you know, it's funny, if, you know, before the financial crash, like working on Wall Street was not what it, and it was like almost like working at Google, how Google, working at Google is today, right? It was very different. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I really knew any better, right? I, and then I think, I remember I was on the trading floor when Lehman was happening and I'm sitting there watching the screens. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Mm. Why am I here? I don't, this is, I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. And that, and, you know, watching Hillary Clinton, you know, give her concession speech. I was like, I am not living the life that I'm, that I want to live. And I, I don't want to be this miserable and I don't want to feel so spiritually torn. And, um, I thought that running for office was the way, right? I was a big, you know, growing up around listening about stories about John F. Kennedy and Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi, like, and people who I, I thought like public service is the way. And I decided to run for Congress in a race that I just thought I could win, but had no shot of winning. What made you think you could win? I thought I could shake every hand, meet every person. I thought, you know, at that point I was, you know, working in finance during day, but at night I was working on John Kerry's campaign. I was helping the DNC. I was like an organizer, an activist. And I kept hearing women should run, women should run. So I'm like, I'm running, you know? And what I didn't understand was like, you don't, first of all, you don't run in a Democratic primary. You know what I mean? Or you're Mm. not supposed to. What is that? Why is that? You're supposed to wait your turn, right? You're supposed to go work for your city council person. Maybe they'll let you on community board, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe. And you're not supposed to run for Congress. I mean, how dare you? Isn't right? that why people hate politics? Yes, absolutely. It's why people hate politics. It's why the system is so broken. 
you know, and our system is especially broken in, in, in New York State and New York State. Don't get me started on that. Would you ever run again? I don't I don't know if, if, if I'd have to really be convinced that running for office and being an elected official, that position, I would be able to do more good than I'm doing right now. And I'm, I'm not convinced right now. Your Yale story, mm-hmm. getting into Yale, you mentioned it. Yeah. Not necessarily a, a shoe-in. <laughs> you no. worked really hard to make that happen. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I am, um, you know, where I grew up, nobody went to Yale Law School. Everybody went to state schools, right? And I knew I was a woman of color. I came from an immigrant family. I didn't have that much. And that if I was going to change the world, if I was going to be in public office, I thought that I had to go to Yale Law School, right? Every Supreme Court justice, every senator, <laughs> every president, like they went there. So, so something about that place, right? I need to be credentialed there. And so I, I first got that in my head probably when I was 12 or 13 and it was like, and I was obsessed with going there. And when I applied the first time, you know, my junior, senior year in college didn't get in. Apply the second time, didn't get in. The third time, you know, got waitlisted. And I remember I just got on a train and I went to New Haven. I knocked on the dean's door. I was like, you gotta let me in. He didn't call security. And he was like, you know, look, I'll make you a deal. Get into any of the other schools you've got into. And if you get into your top 10%, I'll let you transfer here. Um And that's exactly what I did. But I always say, you know, Rebecca, like nothing comes easy for me. Like nothing happens the first time or second time. Even, you know, having a a son, it's been challenging, you know. And I think I have a tremendous amount of resilience. Um, And I definitely think that that comes from my family and my my upbringing and, um, you know, having aspiration. I remember when I was growing up, I was just thinking about this the other day. Every weekend as part of what we did as a family is we would get in the car and we would visit um, we'd go to open houses for for homes that we couldn't afford. We, and my family, did you see the parade of homes? Yeah, we would go look at these really nice yeah. houses. So we would run oh around God, in the house, and it was like, I, I don't know why we did that. By the way, I do I, you know why your family? So did? I was thinking about they, this the other my, day. I think my parents just like to look at the houses. I think this is pre-internet. You didn't yeah. just scroll through yeah. Street Easy all day long. I think it was aspirational for them too. Yeah, probably. Right? I think it was something about like. <laughs> Oh, right. And anyway, you eat like I'm picturing the um the uh the the little flags like the little they were like the little triangular yeah. color yeah. flags, yeah. And like the free snacks in the house and like <laughs> I think there's just something aspirational and maybe they wanted to show us some like, what life could be, right? Yeah. And um and they worked hard to buy one of those houses. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? What, uh, eventually. But I think I think that like you need hope and you need to strive for something. So for me, it's like, even when I start Girls Who Code, like I just set out a crazy goal. I'm going to teach a million girls. I wanted to put a point up on the board that I could reach for. Yeah. Because to me, it's like, go big or go home. Mm-hmm. Like, dream big or go home. Like, there's no point. Unless you're going to make a difference, like, what's the point, right? Putting that uh, goalpost up. Yeah. Once you did that, how did you think through the way of getting there? So I think it was, um, I think I worked backwards and said, all right, how many girls would I have to teach? What would I have to do? And, you know, part, some, sometimes it's about setting a goal that you know you may actually can't reach, but like you want you want to put something aspirational up there. 
And it's so funny. I, I actually really loved Bezos's investor letter when he talked about the headstand, right? Yeah. Um, and it's kind of that same analogy, right? And so sometimes this, the bad part about setting a goal you can't reach is like when you don't get there, everyone feels like they failed. And all this work that they put into is for nothing. So I think what I've always done with my team and in with myself is talking myself through the process of like, we're setting this big goal and like, here's where, here's how, here's how we're getting there, right? And if we didn't get there, it's okay because we're still trying. Where are you in your research? What have you learned? So much. I mean, I think I've learned that like by 30 months, kind of kids learn, have very kind of gendered uh, interpretations about the way they should behave. So like, for example, preschoolers very early on, I see this in my son's nursery class. When they're building blocks, girls will build very small, stable structures. There's often a story with it, right? But it's stable. Boys just build high and then break it down. Like, why is that? And that's, that's so, such a metaphor for the way that we then start engaging in our lives, right? Men become risk takers. They're fearless. They'll jump off the monkey bars, right? They're comfortable with challenges. They, they don't take it personally when you tell them they don't do things right. We become perfectionists, right? We, and, and I think a lot of that starts on, I would say, uh, in the jungle gym. You know, even if you watch the next time you go to the park, if you're ever at the park, right, watch the way that uh, parents are with their daughters. You know, honey, come back here. You know what I mean? Don't get your dress dirty. Be careful. Right. But with our boys, they're a mess. You know, if you meet my son, he's like a pig pen. Booger in his nose. <laughs> Yesterday's breakfast. Like his hair's got like knots in it. Like, you know, he, 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 you know, he's, he's a mess. He's my little pig pen. But he's fearless. And he will, you know, climb high and just fall. And and that's a lot of the way that I think the way that he's played with and he's taught to play and behave. And so I think this coddling, this protectionism happens from the time that we're young up into the time that we're, you know, in high school. And all of a sudden we think we have we have to be a size two captain of the cheerleading team, straight A student. You know what I mean? And we all of that. Right. With the, the perfect Instagram profile. And then we get into college and we think, great, it's done. Now I can just be me. And it starts all over again. And by the time and I felt this when I was on the floor, you know, in my finance job, I was like, what do you mean? I did everything right. I went to Yale. I went to Harvard. I went to all these companies. Why am I not happy? Why is not my life perfect? Uh, and because I realized I was chasing the wrong thing. I was chasing perfection rather than really trying to understand Reshma and what Reshma wanted to do in her life. Were you scared when you stepped away? All right, stay tuned for more No Limits after a quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. Were you scared when you stepped away? Oh, my God. I was terrified. And the first person I was most scared of was my father, my immigrant father, that I had to tell that I was going to forgo this six-figure job, you know what I mean, at 33, to do something that probably wasn't going to succeed at. 
And he had probably, he had said, it was interesting, I think he had seen my downfall, my emotional, spiritual downfall, and was like, thank God, quit, go, just do it. And I didn't expect that response. Because that's the other thing. I think that we think that people are going to be responding in a certain way, right? And uh, because we're in our heads. And so it's, again, the sense of freedom that actually people all around you see how this perfectionism uh, is literally killing you. Uh, and want you to set yourself free. Uh, so, yeah, it was very, and I think the other thing is when you start being brave, it's like a, it's like a muscle. Once you start taking risks, what you, what I have seen personally is you're definitely going to fail. I fail All every time. day. Yeah. <laughs> but what you start to see is that it's not a big deal yeah. because tomorrow is another day and yeah. you've got the opportunity. If you like literally believe in yourself and you just decide, I'm going to make something happen tomorrow, then failure is okay. Yeah. Because you're just going to keep coming back. Yeah. The exhaustion does settle in at some point. It does. And I I don't want to be flipping about the fact that, like, you know, about it either, right? Because I'm always like, you know, like, I think that you have to have a hack on on failure. And and to me, it's about, like, setting a time period to grieve and to talk about it. And then you move on and you don't look forward. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Yeah. And you don't question yourself and you don't, it doesn't, it never, it never starts, it never hurts any less. I think your recovery time from it, you know, and, and look, I mean, I think that there are moments in my life where something is not working out for me that I've worked so hard on. And I often think, is this the one time it's going to break me? Mm. Is this, the, is this going to be the one where I'm just going to not be able to recover? And I think that's what, that's the fear. It's almost easier to not try at all than to try and fear, you know what I mean? Feel that it might break you. And that's why I think a lot of women just say, you know, I'm not going to start that business. I'm not going to get out of that toxic relationship. You know what I mean? I'm not going to lose that, that 10 pounds or whatever. Because what if I try and then it doesn't happen? Is it worse just trying it and it not working out? And that's the calculus. That's what we need to undo for women. When it comes to girls who code, Walk us through a moment where you thought that and how you managed through to the other side. Hmm. You know, I think um, I think that when I started Girls of Code, it was like unicorns and rainbows, right? Like the world was like, build, create, you know what I mean? This was 2012. Yes. And I would say for the first couple of years, it was um, it was cute sometimes for people. Now it, this is about power. Now it's working. Now we're teaching 90,000 girls. Now we're, you know, you, you go into any college classroom in the computer science department, and I would say that the vast majority of our, are those girls that are saying they're our alumni. So, you know, we're looking at these tech companies like, we're coming, like, and you're going to have to hire us. And you're starting to see a different conversation emerge, right? You had New York Times had a series of articles about, you know, men in Silicon Valley starting to say that these women are taking their jobs, right? This cabal. And it's, that's about power, right? P- people don't give up power easily. And so we're in a different trajectory in the conversation right now um, where we're, we're facing different challenges. I love a good fight. You know, so um, what is the explain the the biggest challenge that you're facing right now? You know, I think the biggest challenge that we're facing right now is getting people to genuinely invest in solving this problem. Right. Like I always say that this is something that if all of a sudden we wanted to put one hundred million dollars to, we could solve the gender gap in the next five to ten years. And so I still think that we underfund girls education 
you know, I think from a policy perspective, like, for example, one of the things that I've really been pushing states on is, you know, start tracking gender. Like you should be, you should know exactly in every single one of your classrooms, because there's this huge initiative to get computer science in every classroom, CS for all. Great. Right. And when it's elective and it's not mandatory, then the race and gender dynamics look like how, you know, less than 1% for black and Latinos, you know, less than 18% for women. So track it, hold yourself accountable to it. And there's a reluctance for that. Right. Because people don't want to see what the, see what the reality is. What do you say to the argument? Okay, so be it to each his or her own. If women aren't electing to study or pursue, all right, let them do whatever they want to do. Yeah, I just don't think it's an equal playing field, right? So I think on on the jump... I think that there are too many cultural things that are telling girls it's not for them. You know, we still had a Barbie doll that said, I hate math. Let's go shopping instead. Really? You, yes. You still can walk into Forever 21 and buy a T-shirt that says I'm allergic to algebra. You know, there are still messages, right, every day. So we just don't see, you know, I mean, it's changing and it's going in the right trajectory, but we're not there yet. And I think we can make a lot of shifts in culture. Like, for example, I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer because I saw Kelly McGillis on The Accused. The reason why my law, my law school class was almost 55% female was because of Grey's Anatomy and L.A. Law and Ally McBeal. Like, we cannot deny the influence of culture on helping girls decide what they want to do with their lives. And we cannot deny that culture still is very much uh, is still a white guy in a hoodie. So, like, let's change that. By so, the way, I love math. I always have loved math. And uh, I wish that I studied more of it. I mean, I wish that I spent more time on it. Yeah. And why didn't you? I honestly don't know. Because I I was the person, as a young woman, I actually kind of liked the fact that people didn't expect it. You know, they wouldn't expect you to be interested in math. And it's kind of like, well, they're... Yeah. Here I go. Here I am. I'm going to be, I'm gonna be right. in, you know, the, the classes <laughs> right. that are predominantly guys. And my parents wanted to send me to an all-girls school, I remember, in high school. And I specifically said, no, like, I want to be sitting next to guys in my math yeah. classes because I want to be better than right. they are. <laughs> and I like that challenge. Um, but I, I, I was actually thinking as you were talking earlier about this idea of fearlessness and wondering what it was that you think made you fearless? Because you have to be fearless to do the things that you've done. Yeah. I... You know, I think part of it is the way that I grew up with not that much, you know, and coming from an immigrant family. And I think being... Hunger. Hunger. Um, you know, I have a father who never will tell me, great job. Like, I know he, like, you know, cuts out all my articles and, like, you know, has, like, some trophy wall that he hides from me probably somewhere. But, you know, he has always pushed me. And thus, I, it's never enough. Listen, if you and I are, you know, if you said to me, are you really, are you satisfied with what you've done in life? No, not. I'm not happy with what I've accomplished yet. Maybe there's some a problem with that, right? But I don't feel like I'm done yet. And I feel like I have a lot more to do. And then I think the second thing is I am very grateful when you're an immigrant and you have a chance to come to this country, you're so grateful, right? You're grateful for everything that you have that all you want to do is give back. That's all I want to do. 
I want to give back to this country that saved my my life, my parents' lives. And so, you know, I think that that drive is what pushes me. And I think for me, it's also about, you know, I think what moves me to this issue is is poverty alleviation. You know, I you know, there's a line, you know, if it were not for the grace of God, she could have been I. You know, every time I go into some of my classrooms, you know, in poor neighborhoods and communities, I look at girls and I said, that's me. Right. And I know that with education, with opportunity, what what's possible. Uh, and I want that possible for every every possible every family that that has a shot. And I do think that like coding is kind of like the secret American dream. Like if you know how to code, you're going to be good. Like You're going to be able to march into the middle class. It's very powerful. What along the way has been the toughest lesson for you? I think the toughest lesson for me was learning how to be the learning that I had to how to be imperfect and that had I had I learned um, to do my scary thing early in life, you know, uh, uh, that would have been better. The scary thing? Like, I, I think the thing is, is I always wanted to do the the, the perfect thing. Right. And not low hanging, the low hanging. Well, I don't know if it, that that's I, I think I thought that, like, if I did all these things, I went out to all these school like that, that like I said that I would be happy. And I wish I wasn't chasing that my whole life. Um, I missed out on a lot of life. Yeah. You know, graduate college in three years. I would like, you know, I sometimes feel like I didn't, I didn't know how to have fun anymore. Right. I didn't try. Should have made some bigger mistakes. Right. I should have made some bigger mistakes or like, you know, tried to like, you know, like now I'm like learning how to surf because, you know, for so I just think I was like <laughs> classic you know, CEO. Founder. Yeah. Right. Learn right. To surf. Oh, God. No. Seriously. Is that cliche? <laughs> no. OK. <laughs> enjoy it. If you enjoy it, that's what's most important. Yeah. I just feel like I um, uh, you know, I've definitely been doing a lot more soul searching, like the older I've gotten in terms of like. You know, I think you think that, and I tell young women this all the time, you think that if you live your life in a certain way that you'll be, quote, happy. Uh, and I think it's much more complicated than that. And I also think it's never too late. I agree with that. To, like, try new things and to get out of your comfort zone. And if you were a doctor because you were just good at, at that, but you didn't really like it, then don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I also think your perspective can change. Yeah. Clearly what you needed when you were mm-hmm. 22 years old is different than what you need today. Yeah. And that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, what's the worst advice you've received along the way? Uh, when I was starting Girls Who Code to not start the organization because girls and boys' brains are wired differently. And it, you'll never, you know, you'll never reach critical mass. Because they were saying that girls' brains aren't wired properly so for code? hmm What did you think when you heard that advice? I was like, what an ass. <laughs> was it a, a f- someone in the yeah. who is going to be a backer or not yeah. a backer? Yeah, financial. Yeah. Did you did you say something in that context, or did you refine your thinking in any way, or or was that just the end of the conversation and on to the next one? That was just the end of the conversation and on to the next one. I mean, I was I it, look when I have those kinds of conversations, they embolden me. Yeah, like oh, I'm going to show you, you yeah. know. Um. And, you know, he's a prominent VC and, 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 and I think that I think that I've had similar ish conversations with other male CEOs, um, even even, you know, years in that are different variations of that. Right. Um, and so I do think that there is an underlying sentiment that women aren't good at it. Women are, you know, are, are you know, are are not don't don't want um, to take risks. 
You know, and you see this happening with the fi- fact that, you know, less than 2% of funded businesses are female-funded businesses. Like, th- there is something to this sentiment that those in power have. And so we have to just change it. What would have happened had you taken that advice? Oh, gosh. I would never have started this organization, right? And I'm sure... Um, that there are other women kind of in this space that have been told that and, you know, had they listened, we wouldn't have all these incredible groups that are doing all this amazing work. And on the flip side, maybe there are women who are told that and we don't have their organizations yeah. now, which is. Yeah. Which is why it's so important for us. Like as in the time that I never have, I try to have every conversation, even if it's for five minutes with a woman who's like, I'm thinking about starting this idea. And I'm like, yes, you should definitely start your idea. You know, you should definitely do it. Take the next 10 steps, you know, because there are often too many people in our past that will tell us not to do things. Well said. Before we go, quick shout out from you to your team, the women behind the boss. Oh, my God. So many. I have like incredible women behind me. So I really want to I want to shout out my recruiting team. You know, we have uh, we're working towards 6000 clubs in the country. We have 4000 in all 50 states. And so there's just we have an amazing recruiting team out there who is talking to districts, school districts, especially, you know, in in, in poor communities. Right. And under resourced communities that need our the need this organization the most. So I love them. Rashma, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Rebecca. All right, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Karina Cabrera-Bell. She's the founder and CEO of Reach Mama Network, which is a company she created to help connect moms of color to opportunity. She's also the host of the podcast, Reach Mama, where she interviews successful moms on their career journey and motherhood. And what I think is really interesting is Karina's back story. So Karina worked for 15 years in government and on political campaigns before she ultimately founded her company. And she caught my attention because throughout her career, she noticed, as she says, the number of moms of color in leadership positions is dismal. And she wanted to figure out a way to change that. So she created this Reach Mama Network, which not only showcases incredible multicultural moms, but they host events and workshops to help empower and educate moms of color to grow professionally. And they also partner with employers to help create inclusive, high-performing teens, as well as strategies and insights to help better develop and retain female talent. Here's Karina to tell you some more about it. Hi, I'm Karina Cabrera-Bell, founder and CEO of the Reach Mama Network. I founded this organization on the core belief that the world would be a better place if we had more mothers of color in leadership positions, because our diverse set of skill sets, talents, and backgrounds make any company, organization, or community stronger. For us, our mission is to connect moms of color to opportunity, and we do that by providing the knowledge, the networks, and a little inspiration to help moms in the workplace. For me, this all started out when, while I was working in the Obama White House. I saw firsthand the importance of fairness and opportunity. If you're interested in learning more about our initiatives, please go on reachmama.com. Thanks so much. Congratulations, Karina. Wishing you continued success. And I really appreciate the work you're doing and the effort you're making to help women of color, moms, reach their full potential. Remember, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more of Karina's story. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me those nominations. Or if you have a career question, you can also send me those too. 
The email is no limits with RJ podcast at gmail.com. I know how busy we all are. I really appreciate it when you take a minute out of your day to send me a note. I also want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you to those of you who take time to send us your reviews. Like, for example, Carrie 7780, who says, Great podcast. Rebecca Jarvis is fantastic. Good questions with interesting people. Truly motivational and inspiring. Well, thank you, Carrie. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to all of you. And a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Producer Taylor Dunn, editor Michelle Boncardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.